Hi there from downtown Denver, Colorado. My name is Matt Hand, pastor of Grace City Church here at the corner of Broadway and Park Avenue. We're glad to have you along for this short series on how to live countercultural lives without just being Christians and churches that are against everything. Now, as many of you are looking at culture right now, I think many of you are probably scratching your heads and asking, you know, what on earth is going on with culture right now? How did a real estate mogul turned reality TV star become president of the United States? You know, uh, what is the alt-right? Who is QAnon? Should I be supporting these groups? Should I know more about these groups? I see this reaction on the left where you have Antifa and Black Lives Matter and, you know, is, is Marxism making a cultural comeback? What is critical theory or critical race theory? What is intersectionality? Should I know more about these terms? Should I believe in these terms? Are we headed for religious oppression and even civil war as more and more people seem to indicate? And I see basically four basic reactions that you as a follower of Jesus could take. Number one, you could ignore it. You know, just stick your head in the sand and say, nope, I'm not going to read about this stuff. I'm not going to educate myself. I don't want to know like, la, 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 it's fine. Like, just believe in Jesus and you remain ignorant. Secondly, you could pick a side and fight back. Okay, I'm with them or I'm with them and these people over here are the problem. Thirdly, you could wring your hands and live in fear, you know, like the Y2K preppers did. You know, we need to stockpile a bunch of meals ready to eat, a bunch of canned food, a bunch of guns and ammo and buckle down because it's coming, you know, and there are literally followers of Jesus who are living with that level of anxiety and fear, doubling down on prepping for the moment that this all goes down, or what I think is the most biblical reaction of the four is that you could choose to live the countercultural kingdom values of Jesus where you are not characterized by anger, by angst, worry, anxiety, but as Jesus said, you are living as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. And to help you do that, here's a message I'm really excited about this morning because I'm going to talk to you about the stories behind the stories of culture. And how do you learn to discern those? And I think this is going to be the, one of the most important things you can learn and kind of start to practice if you want to see your life used on mission for God and the gospel. If you want to see other people coming to faith as God uses you, it is so important that we understand the narratives that people tell themselves that are behind all of these cultural movements and phenomena and ideologies and all of that. So let's go. And I want to begin with a couple quick stories from the life of Jesus beginning in Matthew 15. As you listen to this short series of stories, I want you to ask yourself, what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? Because he's going to ask some weird questions. He's going to say some weird things that you maybe wouldn't expect the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to say to people. So Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that 
region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Turn a few pages to Matthew chapter 19. Verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, sorrowful for he had great possessions. A third story that I wanna just uh, summarize for you from John chapter four Jesus goes to a well in Samaria where Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They hated each other. There was a lot of racial and ethnic tension, religious tension as well. He goes to this well and he invites this Samaritan woman to draw water for him. And, and she's, you know, she's mystified. You know, how is it that you, a Jew and a male, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, to draw you water. And they start having this conversation about living water and you know, eternal water that springs up and just keeps coming to eternal life. And in the middle of this, Jesus says, hey, go call your husband. And she says, well, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you, know, you, you say, well, you don't have a husband because you've had five of them. And the man that you're with right now isn't even a husband. And she changes the subject to talk about, hey, you know, you're a Jew, so do you think we should worship God in Jerusalem or here on the mountain where we worship as Samaritans? And, you know, Jesus basically says, I'm, I'm not worried about this mountain or that. A day is coming. In fact, now it's here when God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But just another bizarre conversation. And as I was going through the Gospels this week and reading a number of different stories like this, it dawned on me, you know what Jesus is doing is he's unveiling people's underlying beliefs. Instead of just buying a cultural narrative about a Canaanite woman or a Samaritan woman, instead of just buying into the cultural narrative about a rich young man who probably inherited a large sum of money and has relative privilege and ease, Jesus goes to them, he has conversations with them, he asks questions of them to unpack and to reveal not the cultural superficial layer, but what's going on, what's the story behind the culture, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. So, number one of four things here, number one, seek to understand other people's worldviews. 
Now, a worldview is basically a, a, phys- a, a philosophical paradigm or a perspective that explains what is or exists and why. So last week I shared with you a gospel paradigm, a gospel perspective, a gospel worldview that goes like this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation. That story, that four-act play, that drama explains everything that is and why it's there, why we're here, made in the image of God. But I want you to notice that probably most people that you encounter, though they have a worldview, they probably have not spent a ton of time deliberately thinking about what is my worldview? What do I believe about this various things? But I want you to understand everyone has a gospel story, so to speak. What I mean is everyone has some version of this rescue story. Like what makes life okay? What makes life work when things go wrong kind of story? And there's a faith element to it because no one can empirically or scientifically prove that and repeat that over and over to them and to others. So how how do we understand people's worldview? Why does it matter? That's what I'm coming to this morning. Well, start with this. This is your letter A. Ask open-ended questions. Jesus was a master of this going to people, and even though he knew what was in their hearts, he's asking open-ended questions, perhaps to teach his disciples and to teach us how to do this with people. Instead of just going up and looking at the superficialities of you're a man or a woman, or you're this race or that, you're part of this culture, this class, he asks these open-ended questions to get people to talk, to get people to express certain underlying assumptions that they have, which form the basis of their worldview, Okay. By the way, people love to talk about themselves. This is a very different missiological technique than going in and bam, just being confrontational. Christians are right. You're wrong. Repent. You know, Um, people love to talk about their values and believe. Why are certain things important to me? Well, thank you for asking. Okay. And we're asking these questions not to stir up debate or to say, hey, I'm, I'm superior to you, but to genuinely understand. Okay, so ask open-ended questions. Secondly, listen for underlying values and beliefs. Okay, what we tend to do in culture is that at any point that we disagree with another person or we have two disagreeing groups, we're like two ships passing in the night. We just do not connect. We do not listen. We love to talk past people. We love to talk over people. We love to talk down to people, but we don't listen to people. We certainly don't listen to understand, hey, why are you living this way? Why is this so important to you? What's going on in your heart that causes you to value this so much? I'll give you a couple examples of this. Conservatives tend to judge those who support abortion or the LBGTQ agenda. You know, and they would say, ah, socialists are just ruining our country. And liberals tend to judge those who are not quite as compassionate toward immigrants and the poor and minorities. And they would say, ah, capitalists, they're the ones ruining our global economy. But do you actually understand what's going on in people's hearts? Or are you just judgmental toward those surface level actions and words that anybody can disagree with. They're the problem. Do I understand 
why they live that way? No, and I don't care to understand. Why does it make any difference? Well, we'll see in these stories it makes a huge difference. By the way, does it really matter if someone's a liberal center or a conservative center? To put it in biblical terminology, if they're a Romans 1 center or a Romans 2 center, you know, Paul makes that distinction. Like the Romans 1 center is just this overtly rebellious, immoral, idolatrous center. But he turns right around and says, okay, you're so quick to condemn them, judge them, write them off. Well, what about you? You're, you're definitely overtly more moral, more ethical, but in your heart, you are tremendously self-righteous, self-reliant, hypocritical. Is one really better than the other? No, both need Jesus just as badly. The, 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 the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, and that's why we're having this conversation this morning. That's why we're exploring this topic. By the way, five questions or five categories that reveal people's values and beliefs. And I encourage you, write these down. Get in the habit of just with a friend in casual conversation, not trying to just open with condemnation or rebuke or criticism, but, but learn to start asking really probing questions about these five categories. They are origin, purpose, morality, goodness, and destiny. And there's a question that goes with each one or a series of questions. So origin, like where did we come from? Where, where did human life, where did all of this originate from? Was there a big bang? Is there a series of macro evolutions that has uh, you know, somehow seemingly halted for the last many thousands of years? Or you know, is there a deity? Is there a God that spoke things into existence or that used evolution to bring things into existence? You're asking questions about origin. Where do you think we came from? Purpose, so important. Purpose, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What is the trajectory, the goal? Purpose. Thirdly, morality. In other words, how do you decide that something is good or bad, that something is right or wrong, that something is evil and should be resisted and opposed, or that something is good, it should be promoted? Okay, Where does that come from? Why, why do you believe about morality the things that you do? Because everyone out there, no matter how tolerant they believe they are, they know deep in their heart that some things are really bad and other things are really good, where did that standard come from? Fourthly, I say goodness. And the question here is really, what constitutes the good life? Miroslav Wolf at Yale Divinity School has this whole course on the good life and different religions and different ideologies perspective on what really is the essence of what makes someone's life good and, and beneficial, pleasant, valuable goodness. And then finally, destiny, that is, where are you ultimately headed? Is it, is it eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and our body goes in the grave and that's it, just some annihilationism sort of thing? Or do you believe in reincarnation, like we keep coming back around? Or, or is there a resurrection? Is there a heaven and a hell? And, and does our final destiny depend on you know, what we did here? Or what we believed here, what we said here, how we treated other people here, what, what, what is our destiny? How do I know that that is our destiny? Why do I believe that? Okay, and my encouragement is instead of listening for keywords that are gonna trigger you into some kind of anger or self-righteous response, what you're listening for are things like this. What are this person's hopes? 
What are their dreams? What are their fears? Okay, what in their heart is driving the surface level reaction that you either agree or disagree with, but what's going on in their heart? Find out what questions they have, maybe for God. What hangups do they have with scripture, whether they know it a lot or very little? Listen and discern. Listen, this is very important. Who are their heroes? Who are their villains? You know, who wrecked the story of what's going on in culture and in society and what is the fix or who is the solution? Let me give you two examples of this. Example number one. One of, one of these is conservative-leaning. One is more liberal-leaning. I hope these are helpful to you. Number one, why do you think a woman has an abortion? And some people would just very that quickly say, well, because they're evil, they're selfish. Well, do you know that one in four women in our American culture will have or has had an abortion? And if you immediately want to write off 25% of the female population of our culture where you will never have an inroad to share hope and encouragement with them, just react that way. Do you know the reality is most women have an abortion. It's a, it's a complex thing, but there is a tremendous amount of shame, anxiety, there's fear, there is economic hardship. Oftentimes they are pressured or manipulated or even threatened by another person. And listen to me very carefully. Planned Parenthood comes along and these different groups come along and they say, hey, you're stuck in a really bad situation. We know how hard it is. Can, can we just come alongside you and help you and encourage you with something that's really difficult right now? And many in the Christian right, unfortunately, come along and say, you selfish murderer, how dare you? Without ever understanding some of the motives and the values and the beliefs of the heart. By the way, if you're one of those people, and maybe you've had an abortion, you're considering an abortion, I want you to hear that God loves you deeply. You matter to God. And you are not defined by the mistakes and the guilt of your past. In Christ Jesus, you are free. You are loved. There is grace for you. Your life has meaning. Your future has meaning. There is, there is plenty of grace and forgiveness and joy and hope and love and acceptance in the Christian community for you. A second example, and I literally read this on someone's meme the other day, kind of a mover and shaker in our community, and this meme said, if you voted for Donald Trump, you support, you support racism, bigotry, white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia, pedophilia, police brutality, and it went on and on. Okay, you want to lose all opportunity to minister to literally 50% of our culture who voted for Trump? Just take the worst possible motives and ascribe it to all of them and say, you believe all of this stuff, you support all of this stuff, you horrible, wicked person who are nowhere near as awesome as I am. See, this is inflammatory. These people are never going to say, wow, I feel like you understand me so well. Yes, I do support those things. Thanks for understanding why I voted for XYZ candidate. No, no. You, you, you miss out on an opportunity because you're not asking questions about 
what are your fears that led you to vote this? What are your concerns? You know, what, what were your alternatives? What are your deep-seated beliefs that help me understand? Just, just help me understand why you voted this way and this other person you voted completely differently. See, see what we're doing is we're asking open-ended questions. We're listening for values and beliefs instead of just superficialities. And then thirdly, we're identifying idols of the heart. See, if you do A and B, if you ask the questions and you look for the values and the beliefs, you're actually beginning to know someone now, right? Like what makes them tick? And instead of either blindly just judging and condemning or blindly accepting someone based on these superficialities, you're actually seeing their most sacred beliefs. You see what they love and what they hate. You see what they fear. You see what they hope in and what they hope for. You see what they believe more than anything will make life work for them. And this, my friends, is what the Bible calls idols. And I'm not saying that in a self-righteous, judgmental sort of way, because as soon as we've used that terminology idols for what someone else has in their heart, we realize, oh, wait, my enemies, those who oppose me, are more like me than I ever realized. You know why I say that? Because I have idols in my heart, too, and so do you. We have things, all of us, that we have exalted above God. We fear them more than God. We find our identity and our significance and our satisfaction in them more than in God. So this should immediately make us empathetic toward the people who have the strongest disagreements with us. See, we can say, you're afraid. That's what it boils down to. You're afraid and you want control. But how many times am I afraid and I want control? How many times do I find it hard even as a follower of Jesus, even as a pastor, to really fully trust God rather than wanting to be in control of something myself. Or maybe someone just wants to be affirmed and they found a group that affirmed them, that that loved them just the way they were without immediately demanding a whole bunch of changes out of them. Oh, we like you just the way you are. Now change, be someone different. So identify the idols of the heart. Now, secondly, and these others will go quickly. Distinguish between corresponding and contradictory beliefs. Does this value or belief that this person holds, does it correspond to scripture or does it contradict scripture? This is what Tim Keller calls A beliefs and B beliefs. Basically, A beliefs would be things like belief in God, belief in the dignity of human life, belief in certain inalienable rights that we have inherited from a creator, natural rights, equality, belief in a day of reckoning, belief in working for the common good. B beliefs or contradictory beliefs would be like atheism or polytheism or universalism. You know, just believe whatever you want. We're all going to be saved in the end. Doesn't matter. Um, It would be something like humans are just animals. We're higher animals, but really there's no purpose to our life. There's no goal. There's no trajectory. There's no destiny. We just die. Um, There's stuff like moral relativism, that it doesn't matter what you believe, you just do you, you believe your thing, there's no objective right or wrong. Others would say, you know, I don't need to be saved, certainly not by that Jesus character. Those are B beliefs because they shape a person's worldview, they shape what groups and movements and ideologies they belong to, what they say, what they do, what they don't do, who they attack. But those are B beliefs because they contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, Christians so often focus on which of these two kinds of beliefs. 
We focus on the B beliefs. We focus on the contradictory beliefs, right? And we feel, uh, we feel self-righteousness in our hearts toward how could these people believe these crazy things. You know, we judge them. We criticize them. We shame them. We debate them. We try to convince them that they're just wrong. And how many conversations go well that way? Hey, before I get into what I'm going to say, you're wrong, I'm right, you should probably listen to me. That doesn't go anywhere, right? So what if we acknowledge the contradictory beliefs as a real problem, but focused instead on the corresponding or the A beliefs? Tim Keller uses this illustration of, he says, um, A beliefs are logs and B beliefs are rocks. Okay, logs float, rocks sink. If you want to get truth across to someone, you've got to bind the logs together and then you can put the rocks on top and you can bring them across, but you can't do it the other way around. So an example of this would be something like this, to say, hey, I see you standing up against racial injustice or, or class injustice. I see you taking a stand for equality and trying to bring justice to the oppressed. You're very charitable. You know, you invest your time and money in helping underprivileged people. That's awesome. Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, why is this important to you? How did you, how did you come to this belief that it was important to invest your time and your money and your energy this way? Or, or to come to someone and say, hey, did you know that these are really big themes in the Bible, even going back to the Old Testament, like thousands of years ago? Let's build a bridge there. Let's connect to those things. And friends, I'm not saying that, that we, we find compatible beliefs in what anybody believes so we can relieve ourselves of the responsibility of, of doing mission of sharing the gospel. I'm not saying that at all. Ooh, you believe in God? Well, that's great. You must be saved. Oh, you believe in the equality of men and women, of black and white? Uh, I'll just leave you alone then. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply finding common ground in order to take a step toward the next thing. This is done in scripture like James 2.19 where James says, hey, you believe that God is one and you do well. Okay, finding a corresponding belief, but, and then he goes on and says, but that's not enough in and of itself. That's not the gospel in and of itself. Let's learn more. So distinguish between corresponding and contradictory beliefs. Number three, strive to remove every offense but the gospel. This is a very simple point, but I do not believe in my heart of hearts that most Christians are looked at as you know what? You have tried to eliminate every barrier, every hurdle, every obstacle, every offense, except for the core of the gospel itself. Now, so often it's our personality, it's the superficial stuff, it's petty stuff, it's politics, it's social views, not on core issues, but on fairly tangential issues. And the scripture calls us to remove those obstacles in the way that the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, saying, I'll become all things to all men, still under the law of God, yes, at all times, but to the weak I'll become as one who is weak, to one under the law as one under the law. I will compromise so many unimportant things in order to get the truth of the gospel across. And if the gospel offends 
Well, then, friends, even Jesus offended with the gospel. I mean, my goodness, in Matthew 15, hey, Canaanite woman, do you really understand grace? Or do you feel some kind of entitlement to what I can do for you? Or, or, or are you just seeking a magic trick from the itinerant preacher? Or do you really understand who I am? He's pushing back to say, do you understand? Do you understand grace? To the rich young man in Matthew 19, do you really think you can earn the favor of God? Do you really think that you deserve eternal life? Yes, you do. So I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to show you how you do not. John 4, Samaritan woman, do you really want to have a debate about the location of worship right now? Or do you want to just take a step back and realize your life has fallen apart and you keep trying to find in men something that you can only find in the Messiah and in his grace and in his life and death and resurrection for you, okay? So Jesus is pushing back and he's allowing the gospel to offend 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we talked about this last week, but listen to this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks or Gentiles seek wisdom, but we seek Christ crucified. And he says, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Now, I'll remove every other stumbling block I possibly can. I will remove every other folly I possibly can. But if you trip over the fact that God is king, and he made himself a man and he took on our sin and he was broken and destroyed for the people that he loved. And the story's upside down because he didn't use his power to take more power or to oppress. He used his power to give himself away in sacrifice, in redemption. If you trip over that story then you need to trip over that story until it transforms your heart and your thinking by the work of the Spirit of God. Okay? Strive to remove every offense but the gospel itself. Finally, share a better story. So don't just end there with like, oh, I'm trying to remove everything. Share a better story, okay? Look at our culture today. You're sick of oppression. You're sick of injustice, especially the injustice of the rich and the powerful toward the weak and the poor. I get it, okay? You're sick of inequality. That is a corresponding belief. That is an A belief. The scripture talks about this. Do you actually know? Let me share a better story. Do you actually know that the Bible, Jesus is on the side of the oppressed against the oppressor, and one day there will be justice, perfect justice, with no partiality shown toward either party. They will get their justice. You will get your justice. Okay? And by the way, the Bible says injustice is wrong, not just because I feel worked up over it, not just because I, I can't say why, but I just think it's wrong. It just, it just seems wrong and everyone needs to agree with me. The Bible says injustice is wrong because it's against the character of God who is just and righteous and faithful and unprejudiced and impartial. Inequality and prejudice are wrong, not just because they're wrong, but because God created every single human being in his own image, Genesis tells us. So that person that you despise, that person who is low, that person of a different color, is every bit as much the image of God as you and me. And that's why we owe them justice according to the Bible story. But you know, the problem isn't just the oppression of the weak by the strong, is it? 
And the solution isn't simply attacking and shaming and ridiculing and tearing down monuments and tearing down and canceling people that need their day of reckoning. See, the problem is we've all failed to love God. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says in the Gulag Archipelago, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. He says, but the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every single human being. And friends, how much anger and hostility and hatred would melt away if we simply believed that bad news that the dividing line between good and evil is not out there between this pile of people that I hate and I oppose and I can't stand because they're going to wreck our country and our culture and then us and me. But it's through our heart, capable of great good and capable of great evil unless Christ comes in and redeems and restores and transforms. How much anger and hostility and hatred would melt away if we each started with our own responsibility before God and just repented of what we find in here. Friends, in our quest for justice and equality, which are good things, we have become a culture devoid of mercy and grace and steadfast love. We demand reckoning for others, but if God turned that same standard on our own brokenness, on our own blind spots, where would any of us be except condemned and hopeless? So I say, tell a better story or share a better story because Jesus comes and says, friends, I care more about justice and equality than any of you do. In fact, I side with the oppressed against the oppressor and there will be justice, there will be equity and equality for both. But, but where does that leave you if you're guilty of sin? So here's what I've done for you. I lived that life of justice and equality. I lived the life of righteousness and love simultaneously, perfectly my entire life. And then I took your mess and I put it on myself and I went to a cross and I let the father cancel me instead of canceling you. And now all you need to do because it's by grace. All you need to do is turn from your brokenness and sin. Turn from your lack of love and receive this free gift of salvation because I will fight for justice for you. I will make all things right in the end. Not, not simply replacing one power structure that's wrong or at least partly wrong, but substantially wrong with another that thinks it's better but eventually it then has power and it then becomes controlling and intolerant and it just goes, the pendulum just swings. And briefly, it's in some kind of centrist middle position, but not for long. And we know it just swings back and forth and the extremes are so similar. In closing here, the gospel both confronts and satisfies every cultural narrative. The gospel confronts every cultural narrative. You, you want power, Paul said to the, to the Jews? You want a sign? You want wisdom? 
the next like esoteric philosophical thing. Greeks, Gentiles, man, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The, 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 the weakness of Jesus dying on a cross is more powerful than anything the world can throw at it. See, Paul's confronting the cultural narratives that he understood. But I say it confronts and it satisfies because Paul is saying to the Jew and to the Greek, you want power, here's true power. You want wisdom, here is the true wisdom of God as he unveils, as as he uncloaks your eyes and takes you out of the darkness and lets you see the light of the gospel and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So friends, this is our one big idea. If we want to live countercultural, kingdom-oriented lives, we've got to learn to uncover the gospel narratives, the, the beliefs, the values of culture, so that we can present Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, as the true and better hope for every culture.